If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, that's where the reading will come from. Before we get started, uh, let me say a word of prayer. Father, uh, it's a privilege that you have accommodated yourself to us, that we might hear your words. God, I pray that we would receive them with joy. God, that we would share your word broadly. God, and that we would learn to wait for your son expectantly. God, your word is treasure to us. Let us study it um, persistently and passionately, and let us learn to apply it to every area of our lives. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the reading will be from 1 Thessalonians, as I said, chapter 1. Uh, and I'll begin in verse 2. I'll give you a minute to flip there. Paul says, beginning in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's Word. Well, it's a privilege to be with you guys tonight. Uh, before we jump in uh, to the text, I just want to say that it's always exciting for me to be with other congregations. Uh, as Jonathan pointed out, I work at Western and a lot of times I, I've come to realize that the students that I'm spending time with, the students I'm evangelizing, the students that we are mentoring and investing in are really the products of 18 years of investment from families like you, from churches like you, and that people have been praying for them, that people have been sharing the gospel with them, that people have been reading the Bible with these students for a long time before I ever see them on a campus. And so it's a privilege to be uh, here with you tonight knowing uh, that oftentimes I'm seeing a lot of the students that you will send on to college. And our goal is that our students will be sent back to churches like yours to hear the gospel and grow in their faith for years to come. So I just want to say it's exciting for me to be here and it's a privilege to be with you guys. So uh, tonight we're going to be looking at First Thessalonians. And uh, as I was looking at this text, uh, the phrase that came to mind was keeping the main thing the main thing. I'm sure some of you have heard this phrase before, maybe in business, uh, maybe in a sports uh, team or game. And maybe you work for a business where it felt like the things that you were investing in, the things your company was doing, were getting a little off track, getting kind of off the center focus of what your company was about. And someone had the mind to say, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Or maybe it was the fourth quarter of the basketball game and it felt like your team was accommodating to the game style of the other team. And eventually the coach calls a timeout and says, guys, Keep the main thing the main thing. Do what we're here to do. Remember the things that are important for us. Well, the same holds true for the Christian life. 
When things get hard, when pressure comes, we need to learn to keep the main thing the main thing. A few years ago, before my wife and I had moved to Kalamazoo to start the ministry here, we were finishing our time at Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois, and I knew I needed to have one final conversation with a student who was a part of our ministry. He had come to Christ pretty uh, dramatically a few years before this, so much so, so dramatically, that his testimony was going forth on the campus even beyond him sharing it. Uh, he had come out of a life of drinking a lot, drugs, sleeping around, all these things, and his testimony was powerful. But as the years wore on and the trials of life came, it began to really uh, stress his faith. And so as I was getting ready to leave, I knew I needed to have a conversation with him. The year before we had left, uh, he had had several family members pass away fairly unexpectedly that were really close to him, and it shook him up greatly. And beyond that, for years, he'd been living with a group of guys that he played baseball with that were non-Christians. And it wasn't just that they were non-Christians. They were really antagonistic towards the Christian faith. And so they were often calling this particular student to return to the life that he had once lived in, to return to the sin that he had once joyfully pursued. And day by day, they were making fun of the Christian faith, making fun of Camp Sourage, which he was a part of, and making fun of the life he was now living And so when I had this conversation with him, I knew I needed to call him to mind the main thing. I needed him to remember the central truths of the Christian faith and hope that he would apply them to his life. Well, the church that Paul's writing to in this letter is facing a similar situation. You see, he had planted this church maybe a year prior to writing this letter to him. And when he showed up in town, the people were worshiping all sorts of gods, worshiping the Roman pantheon, And functionally, they were subservient to the Roman government. They kind of paid their allegiance to Rome, to the emperor. And so when Paul shows up and preaches the radical message of the gospel, and people actually respond in faith, it causes some problems. And eventually, after only a few weeks, enough people come to faith in Christ, and it causes enough disturbance in the town that people forcibly drive Paul and Timothy and Silas out of town and ask them never to return. And it leaves this young and struggling church in a really difficult spot. They are really biblically illiterate. They have no leaders to look up to, no mentors left. And the guy that planned their church has now become like the face of public mockery. People going around town saying, you guys remember that crazy Paul guy and that Jesus character he kept talking about? And they look at you if you had believed the message and say, and weren't you one of those people that believed what he said? Weren't you one of the ones that received that crazy message? And so not only is your church struggling for leaders, the only leader you've known is being made fun of day by day. So what will Paul say to this church? Well, in this letter, it seems that he's addressing a set of questions, a set of problems this church has addressed to Paul. They've probably written a letter through Timothy, back to Paul and ask him to speak in to different matters the church is facing. And we're going to address three particular questions this church was potentially asking Paul and how he answers those in this introduction section of the letter. And those three questions are these. The first is this. How do I know, Paul, that I'm a Christian? What makes me a Christian? How can I have any confidence in that fact? The second one is this. 
in your absence, Paul, how do you expect the church to grow? How do you expect the mission to advance when there's no missionary? And thirdly, they're just asking something really simple. Paul, with all the pressures we're dealing with, with all the trials we're facing, how do you expect us to go on? How do you expect us just to make it to the end? And I'm sure as I read those three questions, that many of you have asked those at one point in your life. And maybe you're dealing with those questions right now as the pressure in your life has turned up, as the heat of suffering and persecution has come, you yourself might be asking those very questions. Well, as we'll see as we work through this section of the letter, Paul's eventually going to point us to see that the main thing in the Christian life is Jesus Christ himself. And so we must continue to receive Christ joyfully as we did when we first heard the message of the gospel. We must share Christ broadly as the same gospel that saved us is the same message that will save others. And we must believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ continually if we're hoping to persevere in the Christian life. And so, before we see how Paul addresses those letters, we must understand something about the way Paul writes this particular letter. Kind of an interesting feature of Thessalonians is that, or 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, is that Paul is like overly encouraging. He time and time again says, I know as it regards this issue, you're excelling in this. Keep doing it more and more. And the opening verses here, in verses 2 and 3, he's basically holding them up as a model of faith, hope, and love. The three chief virtues of the Christian life. And when I read it, I think, you're telling me a church that spent three and a half weeks with you, Paul, is excelling in some of the most important virtues of the Christian life. How can this be? And so we've got a couple options. Maybe Paul is just lying to them to make them feel better about themselves, which is doubtful. The other option is that Paul is saying things that are true about them, but maybe not complete in them. What I call it is he's giving them Little League encouragement. And so what that means, if you've ever been to a Little League baseball game, you know, you show up and the pitchers are trying their best, but they're not throwing a lot of strikes. The hitters are swinging their hardest, but they're not making a lot of hits. And when they make contact, they're not fielding a lot of the ground balls to throw anyone out. But when that game gets done, if it's your son or daughter, your grandson or granddaughter, you go up to them and say, great game, and you're a great baseball player. And what you're not saying is, hey, you're going to be invited into the Hall of Fame. What you are saying is you've done a lot of the right things that would make you a good baseball player. You've thrown the ball, you've pitched the ball, you've swung the bat. Keep going, keep improving, and keep developing these areas. He's saying you have the fundamentals, you just need to keep going in that same direction. And so what Paul's doing in this letter, as we'll see, is he's giving them this literally encouragement. He's giving them encourage commands. And so when we get to some of these areas, he's not going to say, go do this. What he might say is, you did this. And what he's implying is, so keep doing it. Or he might say, this is true about you, so make it more true about you. Keep going in that direction. And so that's just something to know as we get to these different questions and how Paul addresses them. Is this a function of that letter? So on to the questions. How does Paul answer that question? What makes me a Christian, Paul? How does anyone become a Christian? Well, in verses 4 and 5, he reminds them of the basics. The reality is, when your life gets difficult, it's easy to forget the basics. It's easy to forget the simple things. And so Paul goes right to the heart of the matter. What makes someone a Christian? 
is the love of God. It's that they've been chosen by God. What he's saying, and this is pretty stark in contrast to the society they live in. You see, when they had become Christians, they had been rejected by their family, by their friends, by their co-workers and neighbors. But Paul's saying you've been chosen by God. He's saying that you might be hated and despised by all those societies you were once a part of, but God has loved you. And the way we know He's loved you is you've heard the gospel, is that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, to make you His own. So although you might be facing ostracization in your community, in your society, although your closest friends might have rejected you and abandoned you, is that God has chosen you and made you belong in His family. And so it's striking what he says there. What he's saying is, how does someone become a Christian? Is they hear the gospel. God chooses them to receive the gospel. It's as simple as that. And when he says that word, gospel, he's calling to mind the whole message that he had taught them. He's calling to mind the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. He's saying, that's the good news that I came and preached. In receiving that is what makes someone a Christian. But more importantly to the, to the issues at hand here is they're probably asking a more subjective question, and that's, how do I know that I'm a Christian? I might have remembered, you know, what is the Christian message, but how can I be assured that I actually am a Christian? When I look at my life, I have doubts. I struggle with some of the same sin patterns that I did before I became a Christian. How could I ever have assurance that I'm a Christian now, Paul? And what Paul does, he goes through a few kind of proofs that we're not going to address tonight that have to do with how he came into Thessalonica. He says, I preached the word with full conviction in the Holy Spirit. He says, it didn't come to you in word only, but in power. But then he goes on to how they responded to the message of the gospel. And if you'll see at the end of verse 6, he says, they received the word, received the word of the gospel, in the midst of much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Saying, how do you know that you're a Christian? Do you remember how you responded when you first heard the gospel? You received it with joy. And that's a striking thing when we think of the situation they were facing. Not many people were receiving the gospel of joy. Actually, most people hated the gospel. And they hate the people that brought the gospel. They drove them out of town. So the fact that the Thessalonians responded with joy is significant. It's a significant thing. Well, I think maybe to understand what Paul's getting at here, because as we know, he's giving them encouraged commands, right? Little league encouragements. So what he's saying is, you received it with joy. Are you going to conti- continue to receive it with joy? If you've ever been to Louisville, Kentucky, to the Louisville Slugger Bat Museum, uh, it's pretty neat. If you haven't been there, you should go. Uh, avid baseball fan, and when I was a kid, I used to love to go to that museum. And you can go there and hold bats that major leaguers have swan, step in the batting cage and try to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. Never been successful at that. That was probably my problem with baseball. Um, but when you go to the museum portion, uh, there's one exhibit that's always stood out to me. And it's a game-used bat by Babe Ruth. And the story behind it is really more interesting than the fact that it was used by Babe Ruth. And so years before, maybe in the 1980s or 1990s, this bat was discovered in someone's attic. Someone's attic, some random attic, they were cleaning out the house one day and found the bat. And when I picture how that bat 
got in the attic, it goes something like this. The first guy got the bat, probably from Babe Ruth himself, at a game. And he thought, this is so awesome and so valuable. He probably loved Babe Ruth. He probably loved the game of baseball. And he knew that bat had so much monetary value. And he received it with joy. He displayed it on the mantle of his fireplace, showed everyone about it, talked to everyone about it. But as time wore on, the pressures of life mounted. He had more kids. The financial stressors increased. And over time, it became a little less important. He watched a little less baseball. And as the generations went on, people began to not remember who really who Babe Ruth was. And they just found this old dusty bat and eventually said, throw this thing in the attic, we'll deal with it later. But all the while, the pressures of life, as we've been talking about, mounted. Financial stresses came. The difficulties of family tension and relational tensions rose because of maybe the financial pressure they were on. But eventually, someone went and rediscovered the bat, and they sold it and made a lot of money off of that bat and probably sent their kids to college and all those things. But it's interesting to note that they probably dealt with a lot of financial issues at that time, and I think that probably is the case because they did sell the, the bat to get money to send their kids to college. And so it's just interesting to think they had this great treasure that really was the answer to their problems, but over time they neglected it. Other solutions presented themselves as more valuable and being more capable of solving their problems. So my question for you is, have you ever received the gospel with joy? Have you ever received the good news of Jesus Christ joyfully? And if you haven't, that really is the most important response to this text. Or maybe you've thought of the gospel as being this formula about how to get into heaven, but you've missed the good news himself, which is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus Christ, and our call is to receive him with joy. But secondly, and probably more pertinent to uh, many of us in this room, is are we still receiving him with joy? Are the pressures of life distracting? Are there other solutions you're turning to more often than Jesus Christ? Are you looking to money or your social standing to give you what the gospel only can give you? Have you been distracted by the mundane matters of life, of what's on our phones and what's in our bank accounts, that we've forgotten the treasure that is Jesus Christ? And my call to you is to remember the joy you once received the gospel with and to recall that to mind and receive it again with joy. But the second question that Paul addresses here is kind of an ever-present question in churches. It's, how are we going to grow? How is this church going to grow in the midst of this situation? And so that's where Paul turns. How is the church going to go on? How is the mission of the church going to go on without the missionary? How is the church going to grow without the founding pastor? And so what Paul turns them to see is that the same gospel that they received that saved them is the same gospel that will save others. And so the goal is for them to share it broadly. The same gospel that saved them is the one that saves others. So they need to share it broadly. The point that Paul's making is they don't need him. And the reality is they've already been doing this faithfully. If you look at verse 8, Paul writes, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. What Paul's getting at is that you don't need a great preacher. You don't need a new program. You need to be faithful to share the gospel where you're at. And you already were doing that when you first heard. So much so that Paul feels like when I go into those regions, there's no more work for me to be done. 
And it's a really interesting statement there. And so what can we learn from what Paul instructs them here? Well, two things that we can apply to our own lives and our own congregations. The first is the motivation that Paul um, ascribes to them for sharing the gospel broadly. The second is the method that they use to be successful in sharing the gospel. And so as regards their motive, uh, if you notice, verse 8 begins with the word for. So it's following up the previous line of thought that was begun in verse 6, that the, the Thessalonians had become imitators of Paul and of the Lord, that they received the word much affliction. Then he goes on, for you became imitators, we could write there, by sharing the gospel with others, by the word sounding forth from you. One way you imitated us was imitating what we did among you with other people. So what we could also connect there is the fact that they received the word with joy made them turn around and share the word with joy. Paul's hitting in a fundamental truth of life. We talk about the things that we love. He says, it's, or what he's getting at is it is easy to talk about the things that you love. And when the Thessalonians first heard the gospel, they loved Jesus Christ more than anything. And the word went forth powerfully. The second issue, though, to handle here is how did they do it? Like, we would love to know what it would be like to be so effective in evangelism. How did they go about this that Paul says, I have no need to speak there? Well, I think as they're going on here, or as he uh, highlights, they became imitators of him. And so we've got to imagine they share the gospel like Paul shares the gospel. So how did Paul share the gospel? The common misconception is that Paul would gather large groups of people and do something like open-air preach or, you know, go on a street corner and preach there. And he might have done a little bit of that, as you can see in Acts 17, but mainly his ministry to the Gentiles consisted in a method much different than that. With the Jews, he would preach in their synagogues. With the Gentiles, he would engage in what I would call workplace evangelism. He was kind of a bivocational missionary. He would set up shop in town. He was a tent maker. People would come in to have things worked on by Paul, and he would strike up a conversation with them and say, well, what's your spiritual background? What God do you worship? Where do you find hope in this life? And engage them in a conversation to the point that he would share the gospel with them. And those who responded favorably, he would meet up with later in the weeks following, one-on-one, to instruct them in the basics of the faith, to establish them and to further those conversations. And so what we see here is that Paul seems to be saying, you went forth the places close to you, the regions near you, the people that came through town. You talked to them about Jesus Christ. And he's saying, continue to do that. Continue to do those things. And what Paul, I think, is getting at here is the way he did ministry amongst the Thessalonians and the way they seem to have done it following him is that workplace evangelism. It's the difference between what I would call airstrike evangelism and relational evangelism. You've ever seen a war movie? You know, if you want to stay way back from the enemy, you call in airstrikes. Drop bombs at 50,000 feet, stay clear of the enemy, keep your hands clean. But to go make friends with those people, to go become really close associates of those people that we like to think of as enemies, well, that's a different game. That's a different story altogether, but it's exactly the method that Paul used in, the, in Thessalonica. So what would that look like for us, what would it look like for us not just to engage in evangelism, but to be evangelists? I think it would probably look like building friendships with our neighbors, 
having cookouts on a regular basis to invite them over and strike up conversations with them, ask them about their families, about their lives, about their interests, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. It would look like that guy you've been sitting in the cubicle next to you for the last 15 years, just inviting him out for coffee, asking him about his life, engaging him with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It might look like the parents of other people on your kid's sports team, that you go out to eat with them after a game and ask them, you know, where do you go to church at? What's your religious background? What, where's your hope? What do you trust in? All those things and engage in them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think it's a really cool picture to imagine your church, Community OPC and Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church, intentionally thinking about how can we engage in this type of evangelism in the neighborhoods that we're in in Westwood. What would it look like for us to engage our neighbors, to share the gospel with our neighbors, to befriend non-Christian people into our lives and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? Imagine how powerfully the gospel would sound forth if all of us were committed to doing that just if the people we're close with. The gospel would go forth powerfully. Well, the last issue that Paul addresses here is just this simple question. How do we go on? You know, he's addressed, how do I know I'm a Christian? He's addressed, how does the church grow? But there's a really basic question. It's the one that suffering people often ask. How am I going to make it? When I look at myself, my faith is small. How do you expect me to go on? Well, Paul seems to have three um, commands or three agendas to push on them to help them persevere in the Christian life. The first is this, and looking at verse 9 here, he says, don't look back. Don't look back. And verse 9 reads this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What Paul's saying is those people you share the gospel with, we talked to them. And you know what they told us? They said, you turned to God from idols. And the question, rhetorically, he's kind of asking is, are you still turning to God from idols? Or are you looking back at your old life? Are you doing now as you once did? The Thessalonians probably had actual idols, like little statuettes in their houses that represented different gods. But they also had what I would call functional idols. Things like the love of money. Things like the love of approval. Things like a love of pleasure and comfort. Things like the desire to be recognized. The Thessalonians dealt with those. And you and I deal with those kinds of things. And what Paul's saying is don't fall in to the deadly, the deadly deception of nostalgia. If you've ever been on a family vacation, probably when you were younger, what you probably remember is all the highlights. It was the fun on the roller coaster ride or the boat ride with dad. But we often forget what it took to get there. You know, the drive to Disneyland is like a 24-hour drive, and we often forget the car breaking down the way and us having to stay at the sketchy motel overnight. We often forget the financial stress that put us under and mom and dad arguing for the weeks following the trip. And we forget when we got to Disney World, we got sunburnt and sick and barely enjoyed our time at the park. And we think, when we look back and we remember the days that gone by, the things we used to do, nostalgia can be really deceptive. And sin plays on the deadly deception of nostalgia. It says, wasn't it so much easier when everyone liked you? Wasn't it so much easier when you didn't feel like you were going to lose your job because of your faith, and you had a secure income to provide for your family? Wasn't that so much better? Do you remember how much fun you used to have before you were following this Jesus character? 
wasn't it so much better in your old life? And what Paul's saying, don't look back. And then he goes on to say, you turn to God, or from idols, to serve the living and true God. And when he calls God living and true, he's also saying that idols are dead and deceptive. Idols are deceptive in that they promise things that you think you want, that when you get them, they'll kill you. They'll destroy your life. And they don't even have the power to give you those things. And so they're promising something that you really shouldn't want, and they're not even able to deliver on that promise. But God, the living and true, everything he promises is best for you and good for you, and he's able to deliver on every single one of his promises. And so Paul's saying, just as you once turned from idols to serve the living and true God, continue to do so. But he also says, look up. If you look at the beginning of verse 10, Paul says, to wait for his son from heaven. When he uses that phrase, to wait for his son from heaven, he's ascribing to Jesus a certain power in authority. And it seems like what he's doing is saying, don't just look at the authority and powers that be, those people in your life that seem to, do, do, to have dominion over you, that seem to have authority over you. He's saying those are just derivative powers. They're momentary powers. That boss you're fearful of, it's not ultimate. Your mom or your dad who's antagonistic towards your faith and ridiculing you for following Jesus, it's not ultimate. Your dorm roommate, your friend on your sports team that ridicules you for being radical about Jesus, they're not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate and he reigns from heaven so that we trust that everything that comes in our life is for our good and that Jesus is working every minute detail of history together for his people. So we must look up and see that Jesus reigns. Thirdly, we must eagerly and expectantly look forward. And so if you look at the end of verse 10, it says, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We could often be accused of being nearsighted. We want momentary relief, momentary satisfaction. We want the quick fix for all of our problems. We want to get rid of our pain now. We want to get rid of our financial stress now. We really want to get rid of that pressure we feel for that sinful temptation. We just want to get rid of it now. But what Paul's saying is keep looking forward. A day is going to come that Jesus is going to restore all things to himself. And things will be made right in that day. And oddly enough, it seems like there might be a play on words here when he says the wrath to come. Because later in this letter, Paul's describing these people are hindering the advancement of the gospel. And he says, alas, wrath has come upon them. In the end, destruction has come upon them. And so what he's saying is these people who say don't follow Jesus, don't listen to that Paul guy, they are saying that you're on the wrong side of history. And Paul's reminding them that's not the case. He says, wrath will come to them, but we trust in the one who delivers us from wrath. And so in him, we trust. A lot of this that Paul's getting at here is kind of like waiting to buy your first car. It's kind of a silly illustration, but when I was 14 or 15, you begin saving up, right, for your car working odd jobs for your dad, your uncle, your cousin, or whoever will give you money, you know. You'll cut trees down to tassel corn, bale hay. You'll do anything it takes. And finally, when you turn 16, you write, you know, a $1,200 check for that car with 180,000 miles on it, and you're happy as can be. Probably eventually just to turn around and write another $1,800 check to fix all the problems in the car, uh, especially if you're like me. Um, but the reality is that purifying power of waiting, 
when you were saving up that money, you said no to a lot of things. You said no to the movies with your friends. You said no to going out to eat. You said no to buying that new game or whatever it was because you had a greater end in mind. And that greater end made you say no to many things that you wanted in the moment. In the same sense here, we're waiting for a Savior from heaven to restore all things. So don't get caught up in the momentary issues of life that continue to look forward. And so in summary, Paul's called us to receive the, to receive the word of the Lord, receive the gospel joyfully now as we received it when we first heard. He's saying the same gospel, the same good news of Jesus Christ that saved us is the same message that saves others. So it's not in the preacher, it's in what's preached. It's not some formula, it's Jesus Christ himself that we're going to tell other people about. He's the power of salvation. And we must eagerly and expectantly wait for Jesus to return from heaven to make all things right. So don't get caught up in the moment. Well, that's where Paul closes this out. And I think if we apply these principles to our life, we'll see that the main thing in the Christian life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must continue to receive him with joy, share him broadly, and wait for him expectantly. Let me pray. Father, your word is good, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is sweet. Let it be treasure in our hearts. God, let us wait for Christ from heaven and say no to all the other things that press in on us day by day. God, help us continue to worship you throughout this week as we leave here. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.